Good morning. My name is John Sapika, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at Zionsville Fellowship. I oversee our community life and discipleship. So I have the joy of partnering with each of you as you grow as disciples of Jesus. And I also get the privilege of encouraging you as you make disciples of Jesus. Zionsville Fellowship, it is so, so good to be with you this morning. Encouragement. Today is our last Sunday specifically addressing this topic. Have you been encouraged so far? I hope so. I hope so. So far we have seen that all encouragement comes from God. We have seen that God uses means to encourage his people. We saw that God's spirit works to bring divine refreshment to us through his word. And he works through his people, through ordinary Christians like you and me as well. But this morning, we will see one of the most beautiful and most compelling examples of this profound reality. The God-given gift of divine refreshment delivered to God's people through God's people. So turn with me now on your sheets or in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, verses 11 through 16. We'll be in Acts 28, verses 11 through 16 this morning. I'll follow along with me as I read. Acts 28, verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers, Christians, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Let's pray and ask God to encourage our hearts as we look at his precious word together this morning. Father, we are glad you are the God of encouragement. You delight to give encouragement to us, your people. So Spirit, come. Cause us to be encouraged by your word this morning. Take my words and magnify Christ. God, would you shape us into givers and receivers of your divine refreshment. You know what we need this morning. You know our hearts. So speak divine refreshment to us afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you know this, that today is race day. Most of you who like the Indy 500, however, probably aren't here right now. That's okay. Now, I have to admit, I don't know a lot about the race or racing in general. But I googled enough to understand a little bit about this and to understand the difference between, say, the Indy 500 and the Tour de France. Tour de France. 
First, a uh, few similarities. They're obviously both races. They are both incredibly rigorous and demanding competitions. And they both have a sort of final lap, including the final part of what's been a long journey. But they also have several key differences. The equipment used is just a little bit different. The athletes have different skill sets. But there's really one key difference that comes to my mind. The course itself. IndyCar drivers drive around and around and around and around in circles for 500 miles over three hours. In the Tour de France, however, there's several stops throughout France over and over again, over a thousand miles over the course of three weeks. Riders race to a very particular final destination. And our passage before us this morning, unfortunately, is not like the Indy 500. It's a lot more like the Tour de France. Luke has been working in Axe towards this particular destination, Rome, for a long, long time. This is the end goal of Paul's journey in this letter. Luke mainly wants us to see that Paul arrived in Rome. That's it's a big deal. Despite count, countless obstacles and issues and challenges, Paul makes it to Rome, albeit in chains. God sovereignly worked through seeming chaos and seeming insurmountable uh, in, in, uh, obstacles for Paul to arrive in Rome. This would be a good thing and a wonderful thing and a valuable thing to reflect more deeply on, on God's sovereign providential kindness. But, but, when I read this passage seven years ago, I encountered nine life-altering words that have very little to do with the main point of this text. Nine words that have forever transformed the way I think about life. They had a sort of cataclysmic ripple effect of positive change in my life. Forever changing the way I aspire to live my life. Every aspect of my life changed forever by nine simple words. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And these nine words capture three profound aspects of encouragement. First, we will see sacrificial acts that encourage. Second, we'll see glad-hearted words that encourage. And then third, we'll see the reciprocal nature of encouragement. Let me repeat myself. First, we'll see sacrificial acts that encourage. Second, we'll see glad-hearted words that encourage. And third, we'll see the reciprocal nature of encouragement. But first, we see these sacrificial acts that lead to encouragement. By traveling with Paul as he walks into Rome, these Roman Christians encouraged Paul by their sacrificial actions. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, to, to fully grasp this, we need to recall a bit about the context of this passage. In the preceding chapter, Paul just survived a tumultuous months-long trip at sea, despite all odds. A lengthy journey that ultimately led to a near-fatal shipwreck at the island of Malta. Paul even then survived a venomous snake bite. In this way and more, Paul endured great suffering while he was in chains. He was a prisoner. 
And yet God also used Paul in powerful ways all along the way to Rome, where then Paul ultimately would testify regarding his unjust arrest for teaching about Jesus and the gospel. So our text today takes place three months after Paul's shipwreck. Paul's providential to Rome continued from there. In verse 11, it says, After three months on the island, we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. This little detail tells us that these carved images of Greek gods will have nothing to do with Paul's safe arrival. The one true God will surely bring Paul to Rome. Verse 12 continues, They put in at Syracuse, and they stay there for three days. And from Syracuse, they make a circuit and arrive at Regium, a important location. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli, a key port in the area. So when Paul made it to the major port of Puteoli, Paul and his companions found other Christians. Verse 14, there we found brothers, Christians, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days, for a week of refreshment. And so we came to Rome. Paul had arrived into the Roman Empire, into Rome, and took a week before finishing the last bit of his trek to the city of Rome on foot. Everything else prior was by boat. Puteoli was around 130 miles away from Rome on foot. So he had at least five more days to walk on foot. But word had traveled fast. News of Paul's upcoming arrival to Rome reached the ears of Christians in the city of Rome. And verse 15 tells that the brothers in Rome, in the city of Rome, when they heard about us, left Rome in the north. And they came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. In other words, they traveled 21 miles south to the three taverns or 43 miles south to the Forum of Appius to meet Paul, who was coming from way south in Puteoli to, to walk to Rome. The Roman Christians traveled at least 21 miles on foot to meet Paul, to greet Paul, before he arrived into Rome. They walked for days to meet up with Paul, to be with him on his final leg of this long journey, to accompany him the rest of the way, to escort him into their hometown, all while he was in chains on his way to possible execution. And in verse 15, the brothers there in Rome, when they hear about Paul, they came to him. They walked to him. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. By traveling to be with Paul as he headed towards Rome, these Roman Christians encouraged him by their sacrificial actions. God gave Paul divine refreshment through this act of encouragement. But why specifically did their actions so encourage Paul? Well, let's consider the significance of their sacrifice. And let's consider the gift of their presence. Recognize that Paul personally knew a number of these believers, most likely. Paul's letter to the church at Rome ends in one of the most distinct ways in the New Testament. He greets believer after believer by name. 
Phoebe, Prisca, Aquila, Epinatus, Mary, Andronicus, Junia, Empiliatus, Urbanus, Rufus, and his mom, uh, Phlegon. You get the idea. He greets all these Christians in Rome by name in Romans 16. Paul wrote of his love for them about three years prior, three years earlier, in the letter we know as Romans. And at that time, three years earlier, Paul already knew of God's grace powerfully at work in their lives. He knew of their steadfast faith in Jesus, and he longed to see them. He wanted to be mutually encouraged by them, by their faith. But three years had passed. Paul may not have heard from them. And Paul, after three years, likely wondered, how would they receive him? What did they think about him? And the moment had finally come to see them face to face. What a precious moment. Think of it like a military homecoming. There's a lot of reasons we love them. We love to see videos of them. But one of the main reasons we love them are the reactions, the overwhelming expression of emotions by all involved. It is precious to cherish that your loved one who has sacrificed so much has arrived home physically safe and well. Paul's response is that one layer deeper. It wasn't kind of the same kind of fanfare as that event, but Paul rejoices that the Roman believers are spiritually alive and well. We can't miss the depth of meaning behind the physical presence of these Roman Christians. By coming to Paul at this time, they were publicly identifying themselves with Paul, with Paul the prisoner. In doing so, they publicly identify themselves with Jesus. To Paul, their very presence meant that they had heartily embraced the same Jesus whom Paul was willing to die for. These Roman Christians treasured Jesus. They risked their futures, their well-being by identifying with this criminal named Paul. They sacrificed in this way and others. They took several days off from their livelihoods to walk three to five days to Paul and three to five days back with Paul. They took their precious vacation time to be with him. What a gift. What a gift it must have been for Paul to see them face to face at this moment in his journey in chains. Now notice the text, however, doesn't say that the brothers Zoomed with Paul or FaceTimed with Paul or Skyped with Paul. No, 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 of course not. Because being reunited face to face at this point in human history meant that people did not use airplanes or cars or trains or the modern marvels of technology to stay in touch. They had to travel by foot to see Paul. And their very presence allowed Paul to glimpse in and see God's work in their hearts that God had continued over the last three years to sustain them, to mature them, to grow them. And that is what encouraged Paul. Well, the good news, brothers, is that God can use you and me likewise. Use our presence to encourage one another. And the better news is that we... 
We don't have to walk 43 miles on foot to do so. We can spend time with a believer who is discouraged by a recent challenge, a health crisis, a job loss, the loss of a loved one, a hard day at work, a hard day at home, any and every sort of trial, small, small and large. And whenever we want to give the gift of our presence, we should consider the kind of presence that person wants and needs. Do they want a quick visit or a long one? Do they want a listening ear or a fun distraction? Do they want a warm embrace or a safe space for tears? Do they need to be reminded of truths or do they just need a person to come alongside them to listen to them? It really is amazing how refreshing it can be for someone to just listen to us complain about our problems. And don't forget about the infinite possibilities of other kinds of actions God might use to encourage others. Whether you are married or single, a young adult or in your golden years, consider what kind of actions might you do to encourage another. Your spouse, your roommate, your friend, your other friend, your neighbor, your coworker, your mom, your dad, your sibling, your, your child, your grandchild, your preacher while he's preaching. The sky is the limit. Serve others by acting in ways they won't expect from you. Do the dishes. Clean the house. Free your spouse up to be with friends. Bring yummy treats. Bring yummy treats. Mow the lawn. Make someone a meal. Better yet, have them over to your house. Make them peanut butter jelly and milkshakes. Do simple things, but no matter the actions you pursue, trust God and believe God might work in you and through you to encourage them. And believe me when I say this, that if you do this, God has already worked in your heart. He has given you the desire to be an encourager. He really is at work in you and through you. So we've seen that God can use sacrificial actions to bring divine refreshment. God's Spirit compelled these Roman Christians to go to Paul at great personal sacrifice. God used them to refresh Paul for all the trials and tribulations that awaited him in Rome. And God used their Spirit-empowered actions to strengthen Paul, to refresh him. Marvel with me today, right now. This God still uses our spirit-empowered actions to really encourage our fellow believers. God can really bring divine refreshment today through other believers, through our actions. May God work in us and may may he work through us in these ways. But this is important. God does not just work through actions He also works through words. And in Acts 28, Paul's words of thanksgiving were most assuredly encouraging to the Roman Christians as well. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Here we see Paul's glad-hearted words that encourage. We need to understand the relationship between thanksgiving and encouragement. With his glad-hearted words, Paul encouraged the Roman Christians. Paul thanks God for them, for their presence, for their likely listening, for their hospitality along the way, for these and other encouraging and sacrificial acts of love. So take note of two details in particular from Paul's glad-hearted words. 
Note the immediacy of Paul's thanksgiving and the direction of Paul's thanksgiving. First, the immediacy. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Immediately upon seeing them, Paul's heart took flight. More or less immediately. Paul had all the reasons in the world to be discouraged. He was in chains on his way to Rome for trial. He was unsure of how everything would turn out. Aside from God's promise that he would not die, he had so much to lose and so much to suffer. But nevertheless, God gave Paul the kind of heart that eagerly and expectantly looked for evidences of God's grace along the way. Paul had the kind of heart that was ready to see a new expression of God's kindness anywhere, anytime. He was confident that despite the worst of times, God was at work for our good and for his glory. And God's grace came to Paul in that moment through the form of people through the arrival of the Roman Christians. And what did Paul do? He immediately thanked God for the believers. Now I wish I had a Paul, heart like Paul. My heart is quick to find fault or issue or problem. I like to think of myself as a professional critic. Perhaps you're like me. Now this is not necessarily all bad. I believe God is gracious to use my sense of perpetual discontentment to push me further up and further in, to seek to improve, to deepen, to perfect. But, but, I can be slow, even hesitant to see good in something and someone. Perhaps in myself, perhaps in others. I can be slow to celebrate the wins. I can be slow to see the concrete examples of God's transformative grace at work in others. I can be quick to dis dismiss the reality of it. I can be hesitant to embrace the beauty of it. I can be slow to celebrate the hope of it. But God gave Paul, and he can give you and me, the kind of heart that leaps for joy at the sight of God's work in a human heart. Pray with me that we would be more like Paul, that we would have the kind of heart that leaps for joy whenever we see God at work in his people, whenever we see God at work through his people. Now, we don't always receive immediate encouragement quite like this. God may not immediately remove the burden of a discouraged heart. Sometimes he does so incrementally over the course of hours, days, weeks, months, years. It's okay. It's, it's common for a discouraged heart to rise and fall like a stock market. But know that God can and God does encourage any human heart fully perhaps even immediately or in part, little by little. And know that he encourages hearts even now, even today, even yours, even mine. Now it's one thing to consider the immediacy of Paul's response here, but it's another thing to see the way his heart then expresses itself immediately. To see the content of Paul's response. How does Paul immediately respond? His heart is quick to celebrate the arrival of these beloved believers from Rome. We see Paul thank God and take courage. Paul's impulsive response upon seeing the Roman Christians is to give thanks. Paul directs his immediate response of thanksgiving to God. Paul thanked God for them and took courage. In some ways, this almost feels a bit unnatural. 
when you stop and think about it for a second. But this was actually a common practice for Paul. And it should be a common practice for you and me. After all, all good gifts come from God, including the gift of other believers. We have countless examples in scripture of Paul thanking God for people. As I share a few, I want you to look for spitting of Paul, for specific personal instances of transformation that he references. Romans 1.8, Paul says, I thank my God. I thank God through Jesus Christ for you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul thanks God for their faith, their specific personal faith in Jesus, God-given faith. Because it's evidence of God's transformative work in their hearts. Paul spit on the Christians in Corinth. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God given you in Christ. That in every way you are enriched in him, in all your speech, in all your knowledge, even as the testimony about Jesus was confirmed in you. Paul spit on the Christians at Ephesus. He said, I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul spit on the Christians at Colossae. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard about your faith in Christ and the love you have toward the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul spit on the Christians in Thessalonica. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul spit on Philemon. He said, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord and for all the saints. Paul spit on a lot of people. And it's a beautiful thing to give thanks to God on behalf of his work in the heart of another human being. It's right to respond with glad heartedness when we see evidences of God's grace in God's people. And in Acts 28, Paul thanks God for the, for the presence of these Christians and he takes courage. He thanks God for the Spirit's work in their hearts and it gives him divine refreshment. Men, do you hear this? We can and we should thank God for each other. We can, we should speak affectionately to each other and to our wives and to our kids and to our grandkids and to all the people we see in our daily interactions. Now, some of my friends teasingly call me Puddle Glum and they're trying to uh, playfully ridicule me for my tendency towards discouragement and despair. But they also highlight a, a subtext of my heart, the courageous boldness God graciously gives me despite my temperament. So men, we can use sanctified humor to make fun of each other in loving and meaningful ways. But don't forget to overtly and affectionately state the ways you see God at work in your loved ones. Women, do you hear this? You can and you should thank God for other women. You can and you should speak affectionately to your husbands, to your kids, to your grandkids, to your co-workers, your relatives, your neighbors. Fight against the normative temptation to regularly gossip in your small talk. Instead, look for and find the beautiful ways God is at work and the people around you. And when someone's name comes up in conversation, 
commend them instead of belittling them. Here's one really practical tip. This might sound strange, but it's really helpful. Give your eulogy early. What might you praise about your dad or your mom or your sibling or your relative or your coworker or your neighbor at their funeral? Latch onto something specific that reveals a personal way you have seen God work in them and work through them. Once you've identified it, think about how to phrase it in a way that would be more memorable, impactful, and then tell them now before they're dead. Tell them with your words. Tell it to them over a text, over coffee. Write a handwritten note and then do it again. Do it again in a month. Do it again in a week. Do it again tomorrow. Do it again at the end of the service. Just don't interrupt me right now. By God's grace, empowered by God's spirit, you might very well speak divine refreshment into their heart. Not by saying things that aren't actually true about them. Not by giving generic compliments about things that don't matter. Not by minimizing hard things that are heavy on their heart. Not by trying to manipulate them to like you by flattery. But by thanking God by specific, personal instances of transformation in their life. So we've seen the immediacy of Paul's response. We've seen the direction of Paul's response. But we also need to see the relationship between the Roman Christians' actions and Paul's response. In doing so, we'll see the reciprocal nature of encouragement. The relationship between the Roman Christians and their sacrificial actions and Paul's glad-hearted words of thanksgiving is one of reciprocity. They are mutually beneficial and edifying. Our passage clearly now, clearly, hear me, hear this. Our passage is clear in showing us the impact that the Roman believers had on Paul. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. That's in your mind at this point. But, but we need to consider the impact of Paul's response on them. Now the text is silent on this. It doesn't tell us. But you and me, we, we're smart. We're, we're with it. And we can intuit. We can intuitively discern the answer. On seeing Paul, they too thanked God and took courage. Well done. On seeing and hearing Paul's response upon their arrival, they thank God and they take courage. For these Roman Christians, Paul's acts of giving thanks to God on their behalf inevitably bolstered and refreshed their hearts. What an encouraging word to hear from an apostle of Jesus, the apostle Paul, someone of Paul's stature, position, authority, and influence. Paul gives thanks to God on their behalf. In other words, Paul's response of thanksgiving and encouragement almost certainly encouraged the Roman Christians. Paul's own delight and his encouragement in God's people overflowed and that reaction led to another reaction which was encouragement in the hearts of the Roman Christians. 
Now I want to unpack this a bit more and we're going to play pretend for a moment. We're going to go back in time and go back all the way to this moment in time and we'll play God for a moment. It's dangerous, but it's okay. We'll play God and we'll read human hearts. We're going to see what Paul was thinking and feeling in that moment and we're going to see what the Roman Christians were thinking and feeling in that moment. And we're going to look at it from a rough timeline of events, from seeing to savoring to singing. So let's look at Paul's heart first. Paul sees God's grace powerfully at work in the heart of these Roman Christians by their actions. By their presence, God's spirit empowers Paul to see that. And then Paul savors that fact that God is powerfully at work in them. And we know this because Paul was encouraged. He was strengthened in light of the divine work that had happened in the Roman Christians. God and his gospel, like Aslan, are still on the move. What a glorious reality to see. And then Paul cannot help but overflow. He sings with praise to God. He is thankful. Paul gives thanks to God for these evidences of grace in the Roman Christians. And he does so, he does so with words out loud, not just to God, but so that the Roman Christians heard him. Now let's consider the hearts of the Roman Christians. Prior to Paul's response, they're, they're walking towards Paul, they're not yet seeing each other, and they don't yet realize that they will soon be the second-hand source of Paul's encouragement. God through them. They see Paul. He responds. And upon of seeing and hearing Paul's response, they too finally see what Paul sees. God's grace powerfully at work in their hearts. The Roman Christians savor the fact that God is really powerfully at work in them. God, God's grace really has sustained in the last three years. And this encourages them greatly. We all, all believers face constant critique and struggle from Satan, from our indwelling sin, from unbelievers, from the challenges of living in a fallen world. But these Roman Christians savor the fact that God is powerfully at work in them. They can't help but respond with heart-filled singing. Not necessarily literally, perhaps, but not necessarily, but with a restored, a refreshed, a renewed heart that's just a bit more hopeful, a bit more joyful, a bit more encouraged. So whether through words or through actions, encouragement comes from God. And it's reciprocal as it works itself out as we see Jesus at work in his people, as we savor that reality, and then we sing out in response. Now I must confess, one of the hardest parts of pastoral ministry, of being a pastor, is the general sense of uncertainty as to what my efforts accomplish. Will God use my words this morning to do anything? This is likely something we all experience to different degrees and different ways. We wonder, is God really at work in my life? Does God ever really work through me? But hear this, Christian. God is, in fact, at work in his people. God is working through his people. Even now, God is working in your heart and in my heart. In the good, the glorious, the beautiful moments. In the bad, the ugly, the regrettable moments. In the significant milestones of your life and in the mundane, ordinary parts of your life. If you are anything like me, you often don't have eyes to see this. To see God's spirit at work in your heart on a day-to-day -day level. 
to see God's Spirit working through you. But it's true. It's true. God has given us the means to see it. He gives us His Spirit working through our brothers and sisters who see that in us and then speak about it to us. So when you seek to give encouragement, be prepared to also receive encouragement as you see that person respond. When you're the recipient of encouraging words, help that person get a glimpse into your own heart. Even if you're reserved, even if your emotional elasticity is pretty narrow, help them see into your heart just how meaningful their word or their action was to you. You'll move from being a receiver of encouragement to a giver of encouragement. At the end of the day, encouragement is meant to be reciprocal. It's not yours to keep for yourself. And it's wondrously contagious in the best of ways. Well, we've, we've covered a lot in the last three Sundays. What should come to mind a year from now when you think about giving and receiving encouragement? I want to compare encouragement, lastly, to three kinds of fuel for fires. First, what do we do to reignite a dying fire? Well, we grab some kind of tinder, something that's easy to catch fire, like newspaper or cotton balls, and we set it aflame to revive the smoldering embers. Some encouragement is like tinder, an essential fuel that sparks fresh life into a struggling human heart. It's a small thing. But if we stop there, the recently recovered fire in a heart might burn out quickly. This means that some encouragement can also be compared to kindling, the small twigs that further strengthen the flames of a fire until it's more established. Some encouragement's more like kindling. And lastly, some encouragement's like firewood, larger pieces of wood that burn slowly, producing a steady burn for a stable fire. This is a rich concept, but let's add one more layer. It only works if we have the right amount of air involved in each situation. Or, to continue the metaphor, only if the Spirit takes the refreshing power of encouraging words and actions and combusts it through the life-giving breeze of the Spirit. So if your heart is weary and worn down, barely glowing, ever so dimly, like a smoldering wick, know that God might use another Christian to encourage your heart. Get your eyes off of yourself and look to Christ. Look at them. See Jesus in their life. Look for how they, they treasure Jesus. God might refresh your heart upon seeing his work in their heart. And as a result, you can confidently know that God has actually worked in you. The Spirit gave you eyes to see his work. And if your heart is already aflame, boldly and brightly burning with white-hot delight in Jesus, don't stop there. Look around at your fellow ordinary Christians and see how they too treasure Jesus. That will further stoke the flames of your faith to new heights. And as a result, your encouraged heart will further treasure Jesus afresh. May God give all of us eyes to see the specific ways he is at work in human hearts, to increasingly delight in Jesus. And as a result, may the God of encouragement spread divine refreshment in our midst like wildfire. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we marvel that you work in human hearts. That you work 
in us and you use us. You work through us to bring divine refreshment through our words and through our actions. So we pray for your spirit to empower and embolden and equip and strengthen us for this wondrous task of spreading divine refreshment that our fellow believers would be strengthened for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, John. So regardless of where we're at this morning, we might be really uh, happy for the sunshine, uh, just lots of things. But uh, one thing that we all for sure have in common is to look to the cross and be thankful for what the Lord has done in our lives. Uh, maybe through friends that you have here with you today, uh, please feel free to express that to them. But let's uh, stand if you are able and... And I'll say that, that that's always an assumption, but we don't often say it. So I, I will just say when we say, please stand, it, it's, it always says, please stand if you are able uh, to do that with us this morning. So let's thank Jesus for the cross.
Minds of Fellowship on seeing you, I thank God and take courage. I really do. On seeing each and every one of you this morning, I thank God and I take courage. Parents, in a moment here, please be sure to go and pick up your children. Let's receive this benediction from God's word from Psalm 119, verse 18. May God open your eyes that you should behold wondrous things out of his word. And may God open your eyes that you should behold wondrous things in his people. Go in peace.